0: Welcome to the Legacy Lifters podcast brought to you by Legacy Minded Men, whose mission is to engage, equip, and encourage men to build a Christ-centered legacy. Find us at LegacyMindedMen.org. This podcast addresses men, men who have experienced transformation and that are making an impact on the world around them in the name of Christ. My guest today is Richard Mangoni. Richard's journey has been one of extreme highs and horrific lows, but all has led him to the palm of God's hand and to establishing Bezalel Prison Ministries. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Joe. It's good to be here. Well, first of all, I have to ask you, what is Bezalel Prison Ministries? Uh,
1: it's an organization that I started when I was released from prison to help inmates to readjust uh, back into society, as well as going into the prisons with Bible studies and, and song and sharing with the men the love of Christ. Um, I work with the uh, U.S. Probation Department as a volunteer. And I go into the courthouse and talk about what prison life is like uh, as these people are preparing to go in. You know, telling them what, how to live, what to bring, all the simple things that a lot of times people don't have any idea of what prison's all about. So we give them, uh, you know, we give them a little, you know, heads upmanship in reference to how they should uh, conduct themselves while they're there. Uh, what's the significance of the name? Uh, the name came from the Bible, and his, uh, Bezalel was the artisan that God endowed with great power from on high, and he worked for Moses. He created all of the artifacts of the Ark of the Tabernacle, including, uh, including all the furnishings um, of the uh, tabernacle. And uh, I took the name because His name means in the shadow protection of God. In all of the years that I was in prison, uh, God certainly had me in, under his wing, protecting me through all of those days and hours that I spent there.
0: Okay, so let's get into your story. Uh, what was it like growing? You grew up in Boston, right? Or yes, the area near Boston?
1: Yeah, exactly. In East Boston directly, yes. So let's talk exactly.
0: about that. What was, what was
1: your family life like? Sure. Uh, my dad passed away when I was very young. I was eight years old. And my dad worked for the Western Union telegraph uh, operator. He died of cancer and uh, a yeah, heavy smoker. And my mom, because she couldn't afford uh, anything else, we moved into the housing projects. So I was a kid from the wrong side of the tracks. But my mom... You know, true her, true her Christianity at the time. Um, I never really knew Christ that early, but my mom certainly did, and she raised us with a with a strong arm, with a lot of love, and she sent us to uh, the schools that we could afford. I went to Boston English High School, the oldest school in Boston, and uh, it was a legacy that we had. Um, you know, that each one of the uh, sons went there, and that gave me an opportunity to, uh, to further my life uh, from there. But it was difficult growing up in the housing projects. But I must confess, I didn't know I was poor until I was about 15 years old. Hmm. Okay, continue, Richard. Yes, and then after high school, my mom, um, looking to uh, you know, further the family, we moved out to California. We stayed out there for about a year. Um, she really didn't have much transportation, so we moved back to the city of Boston. At that point, I couldn't find work, so I joined U.S. Air Force. And I spent uh, four years in, in the Air Force. I'm a Vietnam uh, vet. And I spent some time uh, Thank you know, for your service. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, thank you. And it, it was a blessing in a way because it taught me to further my education. So when I got out under the GI Bill, I ended up going to uh, college and graduated from uh, AIC, American International College in Springfield, Mass. And that, that was a blessing because that put me into a track of becoming an accountant. And from there, my, my career just flourished.
0: So you went from accounting, you started to really flourish with numbers, and started getting into a credit union, I believe. So you got some background there.
1: Yes, exactly. I I was hired by Polaroid Corporation to be the controller of the credit union. And as I was there, and and my talent continued to increase, because at that point, I was going for my master's at Babson, um, I was able to uh, move forward, where I became the general manager of the credit union, when the manager retired. And you know, from there, after several years, uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, which was the number 55 on the uh, Fortune 500 at the time, uh, wanted to start up their employee benefit as a credit union. And so they hired me to start the, the Digital Employees Federal Credit Union. And that was a, a great blessing because they gave me an opportunity to really shine in what I enjoyed best. And uh, from there, of course, uh, also when, once I got bored with the job because there wasn't really much else to do. We grew it up to 20-some-odd branches in Puerto Rico and California and, you know, Colorado. We're all over the place. And then it started to get a mundane for me. So that's when I started dabbling in real estate in the stock market to uh, further my ambitions.
0: So now we're getting into where we're actually going to be focusing most of our time on. You wrote a book, Busted, a Bankers Run to Prison, which is available, by the way, on Amazon and on Barnes & Noble. And now it's, we're going to get, we've gotten a little background here. Now we're going to move forward. And uh, because of this boredom, you started to really kind of push the envelope. Now, if I remember correctly from the book, you, you did quite well in the business doing things on a, in a legal fashion. Is that right? That's
1: correct. Yes.
0: And, and tell us how, what that was like for you.
1: Well, I mean, the thing is that everything I seemed to touch, uh, you know, turned to gold. Um, I certainly had a greed for money. At the point, uh, I wasn't a Christian, so I didn't really understand what that meant. But money became my idol. That was the god of my heart. And so I would deal heavily taking risks in the stock market, and the bond market. And I just happened to call everything right. Uh, I was a great risk taker. And, you know, I would, I would gamble. I would call it gambling. I would gamble a half a million dollars uh, on, a st- on a particular stock. And that stock would just, you know, flourish and take off. And that began the accumulation of my wealth. Um, from there, uh, we, I, was, I was trying to uh, open up more credit unions and become more notoriety as far as fame. Within the credit union movement, I opened up a credit union on Cape Cod. And that was the beginning of my demise because I started using that opportunity to uh, buy a lot of real estate. And the board of directors that was involved also were heavily involved in real estate. And that's when we started crossing the line from, you know from white into gray. At the time being a, not being a Christian, I didn't know it was just black and white. I thought gray was okay. Um, but you realize later on in business, it's not. Um, I didn't know, I, had, I really had self-imposed integrity and I didn't know what, what integrity was until I read the Psalms of King David when he spoke about integrity. And, and these are the things, you know, being in the world and not understanding, no excuse whatsoever. We made some very poor and evil choices. Um, We started getting involved in large real estate uh, holdings. We had over, but when the house of cards fell, we had over 20 some odd million dollars worth of real estate that we owned, you know, a lot of subdivisions, motels, uh, hotel project we were starting. And each individual board member was partaking of this. And there was four of us that were heavily, heavily involved. And it was illegal for me as the chief executive officer at Digital to be partaking as a silent partner in these ventures. And I was the money man. So they came to me for the disbursement of these loans as construction and so on were going on road and different things that we had done. And uh, it was certainly wrong for us to be doing this. But in our own hubrisness, we ended up thinking that worst comes to worst, I would maybe lose my job, you know, for insider trading and not realizing that I was facing a life sentence through my folly. And, uh, you, don't, you don't, you can get so proud of yourself and thinking that you're on top of the world that nobody can touch you and, and shame on us to be so foolish. So, in effect, you
0: really became your own God. And that God was being driven and fueled by the greed, looking for more and more and more because you had an insatiable desire uh, and a hole in you that you were just filling with this. With this. Were you filling it with anything else? I mean, what was your marriage like at the time?
1: Well, I mean, I led three lives. There was a show on TV back in the 50s. Uh, he was a CIA agent. He was at home during during the day and, and then on the weekends he would take off to this place and then of course he had a regular job. I did the same thing. I had a good home life with a wife and two children. I had Digital Equipment Corporation's credit union sixty miles going in one direction, then Cape Cod sixty miles going in the other direction as the Playboy. So I ended up, you know, we had our own plane. I had a lot of fast cars. So I really was living a life on the fast lane. I was home on the weekends, but any excuse was a good excuse if I needed an excuse to stay out late, you know, calling cards or whatever else, traveling on my plane, going to Atlantic City and doing a lot of foolish things that husbands shouldn't be doing. But I certainly lived on that edge. Okay, so let's uh, be clear. I consider myself a playboy in to some respect and, and that was wrong. Yeah, that was really right. wrong.
0: So to be clear, you built a significant business legally and you made millions of dollars doing that. That's correct. And then you transitioned into a criminal. Let's be honest. Exactly. And from exactly. that, what? To, so take take what actually happened to get you caught, and and when you when that happened, I know there are a lot of things that occurred in your personal life as well with your family at the same time. So you were really getting ready to just erupt. What actually tipped the scale?
1: Well, originally, when we started doing these loans, I needed write-offs because I was making millions in the stock market. So all of these loans that we were getting, I was able to write them off. So instead of having a tax bite of a half a million, it might have gone down to a quarter of a million because of all the properties that we own. So I was using it as a shelter. My other partners were using it as long-term gains as we sold the lots and as we ran these businesses. Um, But what happened was we started with some delinquent loans. This is during the time of 86, 87, when the Tax Reform Act came out. Uh, Many people may be familiar with that. And the, the, one of the things that hurt us the most was it limited interest deductions on investment properties. Most of the people that were buying our properties were investors buying two, three or four family homes down the Cape, and they were using them as rentals and then taking all those write-offs. Once that 25,000 dollars came in, and interest rates at that time were very high, um, our, all of our opportunities to sell our properties dried up. And that's where the Ponzi scheme began to come in. Uh, a property a property a subdivision of a million four. We needed, uh, you know, um, interest payments. So what we did was we increased it to a million eight, had, had the appraiser come in, re- reappraise it to a higher level so we could keep this thing fl- afloat. And of course, all of this is very wrong and very evil, but yet we were in survival mode at that point in time. And this is where, you know, everything came crashing down on us because the feds came in and began to realize we we're running into some delinquencies. And a lot of the loans that started to show up delinquent, board members and myself started calling. And one of the attorneys that borrowed money from us, that was one of our our partner's attorneys, uh, blew the whistle on us because he didn't want to make the payment on his second home on the Cape. And uh, he's the one that said, you know, the credit unions are doing things and so on. And that's when they began to look at it. But it was going to come crashing down anyway. If he didn't say it eventually, you know, it would come down just because of the large amount of delinquencies we had where people couldn't afford to make those payments. And we are talking about 1986,
0: 1987
1: right now or a little bit later? No, we we got 86, 87, and then we we carried it with the Ponzi scheme until uh, late 90 to early 91. The feds came in in uh, February, March of of 91. And and when they came in, how did you feel? Were you afraid? Did you think you could get off? Or were you sure you were busted? Um, I didn't know I was busted. We're still squirming. Um, I was like that 154th fish in the net trying to get out of uh, the Lord's net. Um, it was actually 153, but I, I did escape for a little while. But the Lord certainly had me on a line, and I just didn't know he was reeling him in at the time. But we thought we could escape because the case was so convoluted. Um, it was so difficult because each one of our properties was in special trust. And the the, the beneficiaries owned the property, but yet the trustee was a straw trustee. Massachusetts and in Illinois and maybe Washington D.C. are the only places where you don't have to disclose who the beneficiaries are, and you can have anybody as a trustee. So it was hard for them to determine who really owned the properties. So mm-hmm. what we did was we gave them, uh, you know, fake beneficiaries. Um, all the paperwork it was was wrong, and that was my forte. And you know, and shame on me for being so good at uh, being illegal. Uh, but that was my accounting background and trying to hide things. Uh, you look back at it; it's just amazing and how foolish we were uh, to continue down that trail. We should have, the, the time they came in, we should have just spilled the beans. But we hung on for another several months, thinking we were going to end up uh, escaping from this uh, folly that we put ourselves in the middle of.
0: So, while this is all going on, what was your home life like?
1: Well, the, the house of cards started falling and my wife and I on uh, New Year's uh, uh, Eve. Uh, got a knock on the door at 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Nobody deserves a a, a knock on the door at 1 o'clock in the morning. You know it's not going to be good news. My son Douglas was 21, a mile from the house, came home, hit some black ice, and um, hit a tree and was pronounced dead. And the police from the local uh, police department ended up coming to the door and asked us to get to the hospital as soon as we could because Douglas wasn't doing that well. So my wife, during those several months, lost the two men of the house. You know, me through my folly at the credit union, and we lost our son in an automobile accident. It was tough going for us for a while. And,
0: and how did your wife handle it? Uh, I mean, obviously, you're, you're leaving. He's gone. You've got a daughter left at home. So what was going on between you two at that time, even though you might not have been around?
1: Well, became, we became two, uh, two ships passing in the night. Um, I buried myself in a new business that I started knowing that uh, I was going to take off because I couldn't face prison and uh, she buried herself in her artwork she was an artist and so she spent most of her day painting and I spent most of my day making uh, sports memorabilia plaques and so on just to get through the pain but it was very difficult for us it was hard for us to even discuss you know the loss of Douglas and of course my poor daughter Jessica at the time was 14, 15 so she was kind of lost in the shuffle Hmm. but still going to high school at that point
0: so we're getting arrested. You know yep. you're going to be going away for a long time. But you determine in your heart you're not going anywhere except on the run.
1: Exactly. And so what I, what, I, what I did was I ended up uh, planning an escape. Um, I had spent a lot of time over in Europe, and I had friends in Europe. Um, and to set the FBI going in the opposite direction, I ended up having a lot of conversation. I made some trips before they stopped me, took my passport. I made some trips to Austria and to Switzerland because I had friends and and, and so on there. And uh, so when I knew when I was going to run, they would probably go that direction while I knew I was going to go to the middle of of the country. Um, I didn't, I was trying to get, uh, you know, good paperwork, but I never really was able to, even during those days, it was very hard to get, uh, you know, good credentials. So I was sort of stuck, but I still took off because I just couldn't face the life sentence that uh, the judge uh, gave me. Uh, even during the trial, he said that uh, a draconian sentence was warranted. And at the time, I got the longest sentence ever for a white-collar criminal in Massachusetts. They gave, us, uh, they gave me 24 years, uh, which at that time I was 49. So that was a life sentence in their eyes.
0: So you're on the run. Tell us what that life was like.
1: Well, you know, I, just, I didn't know from day to day where I was going to be. And uh, it turned out that when you don't know where you're going to be, obviously the feds looking for you don't know where you're going to be either. So I was on the run for a year and a half. Um, I found a, a place to rent in uh, Tennessee, in Hendersonville, right on the, right on the lake. And I, I led a pretty good life. But, but the problem was I, only, I had $132,000 with me. I strapped $10,000 uh, packs around my T-shirt. And it was, I was leaving in the wintertime in, in February, March. So I ended up having a sweater over my T-shirt, and uh, I took that cash with me, knowing that it wasn't going to last forever with rentals and not being able to secure a job. I started dabbling in the stock and bond market. But I soon learned that one of the traits that I had was that I surrounded myself with people that were smarter than me. So my Morgan Stanley's and Bank of America and all these different Smith Barney and all these places where I used to go to get my information all of a sudden dried up and I was on my own. I made some real poor choices. So uh, half of that money was uh, lost during that transition of me being on the run. And that just precipitated me uh, through that point in time to just about give up. Um, And I knew that at that point, I felt that the best thing to do was to take my life. My wife still had a $2 million life insurance policy on me from my old days when I was flying high. So I felt at least this way the family would be taken care of. And I had purpose in my heart to commit suicide thinking that that was the only way out. And what happened? Well, it's interesting in how the Lord's plans, of course, are different than what our plans are. Um, I had uh, picked up some uh, duct tape and a hose and I was gonna end up uh, putting it in the back seat of the, uh, of the car that I had a rental. And I was gonna end up drinking a bottle of wine the next morning and falling asleep. And when the authorities or the person in the house found me, you know, I would be, I would be asleep in the car forever. And uh, I had my Massachusetts driver's license taped to, the, uh, taped to the window. So I felt that that was the best way to go. So the evening before, um, surfing through the TV channels, kind of numb, not really knowing what to do or how to do it in my own mind. And uh, they came across the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. It was one of these evangelistic uh, shows that they had on. And the evangelist ended up talking about the Lord Jesus and <clears throat> that if you're heavy burdened and heavy minded, you know, come to know who Jesus Christ is. And he put his two hands right next to the, uh, the camera. And he said, match your hands to mine and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. Um, I said, okay, I'll do that because I certainly was, was very heavy burdened. I matched his hands to mine and I ended up saying a prayer that came out of that Romans road. A little later I found out. And I ended up receiving the Lord Jesus Christ through a method that we're on right now. But at the time, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I know the next morning when I got up, I felt a little lighter. Um, I know during the time I had shed a couple of tears, and it was interesting that they had a toll-free number on the bottom of the screen. And I called the number, and one of the questions that I asked the person that answered the phone was, if a man who just received the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior committed suicide, would he go to heaven or would he go to hell? And there was a pause on the phone, and the young president came back, and she said, I'm sorry, sir. She said, this is a number to, uh, cl- to raise money and not to give advice. So that was kind of a, a, a disappointment for me. I know that when I shared that in some of the churches, some of the people would laugh about that. But what I did was that the Lord had a reason for this. The next morning when I got up, I took all the uh, material out of the car that I was going to end up committing suicide took the, uh, the driver's license off the side window. And when I went, went out to the nearest bookstore and I bought a Bible and some tapes, I was hiding in uh, Tennessee and there's a church and a bookstore on just about on every other corner. So I was in a good place to uh, to learn more about the Lord. And I spent the next couple of months uh, studying the word, reading the word. And that gave me the opportunity and the ability uh, through understanding what the Lord would have for me to turn myself into the authorities. And that's what I did.
0: But wasn't it wasn't there was another man that got involved. Wasn't it a priest that yes. kind of pointed you to that direction?
1: Uh, yes. There was, a young, there was a young priest that uh, I went to see to turn myself in. Uh, the night before, it was ironic that I went to confession. You know, being raised a Catholic, I didn't know any better at that point in time. And when I looked around, there was this old priest that was just sitting there, and I sat down and said, Father, where's everybody for confession? He said, that's kind of old hat. People don't come to confession anymore. So him and I shared for about a half hour and I left thinking the next morning when I went back to the rectory, he would be there to turn myself in. He was off that day. So there was a young uh, priest there right out of seminary. And I walked in, told him who I was. And he had the secretary uh, call the uh, FBI. And uh, him and I were were sharing in the the kitchen in the rectory for several hours uh, before the secretary came in and I could hear them out in the hallway. And she said, well, I've called the the, the marshals, I called the FBI, the ATF, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and nobody has returned my calls. And an- another hour goes by, and we're talking theology, and he made me lunch. And we were just having a grand old time, and all of a sudden she came in, and she said, the FBI called, and they wanted to know if he was dangerous. And so uh, he kind of chuckled, and he said, well, tell him that we've been talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and to come over and pick me up. So half hour later... Uh, This guy that came right out of a movie, uh, his name was Richard, same for his name, FBI agent, uh, six foot one, six foot two, dressed perfectly, uh, came in and he said, hi, are you Richard Mangoni? I said, yes. He said, well, he said, I'll take you into custody and bring you to the uh, local magistrate. So uh, he didn't cuff me in the rectory, but when we got to the car, he cuffed me. And then that was the beginning of my journey uh, being 18 years uh, of incarceration.
0: So tell take us through your your time in prison. What was that like? Was it were you fearful? I I know you said you could not live a day in prison, but now something's changed. You you're you're coming to know the Lord. You're going to prison. What was your mentality at that point? What was your mental state?
1: I was I was in great peace. It was interesting because, yeah, I want to go back to Richard, the FBI agent, for just a second. As we as I was there being processed, a couple of marshals came in and, and talked to me, and then when they left. Richard, the FBI agent, came by, and he put his hands to the bars. And I looked at him kind of oddly. I was wondering why he wanted to shake my hand. And he said to me, I like shook his hand. He said, Richard, I want to let you know you are the nicest criminal I've ever met. <laughs> and that was, the, that, was the, the, that was the Lord Jesus Christ in me that was showing that joy and not being you know, saddened by it. Obviously, I knew that I did evil. I knew that I had to face the music. The Lord certainly showed me that in the Word. And I was ready for that journey. But I must profess, the local county jails uh, are very dangerous. Um, it's not really a place that a white-collar person would ever feel comfortable in. You have a lot of people that are, that are on drugs and alcohol and other things that are, are very volatile, and, and it's a difficult uh, position to navigate yourself in that arena, uh, not having any previous experience of uh, being incarcerated. So at first, it was uh, difficult, but later on, when I went into the... U.S. Uh, prison system, it became much easier because you could pick and choose on who you wanted to be with. And I spent most of my time either at work or at the chapel around like-minded people, so it was a lot easier transition for me once I got to the higher level. And you
0: connected directly with the chaplains, correct, at the prisons?
1: Yes, yeah, we had, we had uh, a couple of spirit-filled uh, chaplains at FCI Raybrook, and uh, I'm still in contact with them today. Uh, both of them are retired, Uh, both of them have actually bought the book and they were very, very uh, good about, uh, you know, sharing their thoughts about everything in the book being right on in my prison stories. Um, I tried to be as transparent as I possibly could not taking sides, but just showing the type of uh, the way the system is and the way the inmates uh, deal within the system. So it was uh, received well from the standpoint of uh, a BOP employees. I was very thankful about that. So over 18 years,
0: I'm sure a lot of people came and went, and you got to share with them. I believe the word, the, your, your book said that you memorized 2,000 Bible verses. Is that That's right? That's
1: correct. Yes. Yeah, but, well, I studied the Word of God every day. That's all I really did. Uh, for, the last, for the first 16 years, I never even watched TV. Uh, didn't read any secular print. I would read some books about the Bible, but most of the time it was spent in the Word. And there were so many awesome prison ministries that support inmates inside. Um, I had graduated from 35 different prison programs, some college, some not, but yet all focused on the love of Christ and the word. And it was great to have and to do all of those. So I kept myself quite busy. Prison became a monastery, if you will, or a seminary for me. And uh, it was recognized by both staff and inmates. um, And it was good for me to do that because I certainly had a lot of junk in me that needed to be worked out. So they treated you well? Yes, I I felt uh, respected. Uh, you know, we went through some bumps in a row with different inmates that all of us will have difficulties sometimes. Um, my life was threatened twice while in prison. And it's interesting that both times the men that were going to do me harm, and both of them were murderers, uh, felt that I was too happy and too successful in prison. I felt at that point in time that, uh, you know, I, I would imagine Joseph would have shared that same, same thought, except of course he was righteous in prison and I was unrighteous. Mm. But certainly the same way. I felt there. When I left, I was the oldest inmate at FCI Raybrook, and also there the longest. And When I got out, I was 69 years old, and that was in 2013. So, um,
0: since you got out, yes, tell me about, well, what was it like the day you left prison?
1: Oh, it was, it was awesome. My daughter and my sister came up to visit me. Um, one of the things that, uh, they asked me, what do you want us to bring? And one of the things that you miss in prison is fresh fruit. I and mean, we will get apples and oranges once in a while, but not, not the sweet things, the grapes, uh, uh, the strawberries, and things like that, because the men would make, you know, hooch or wine out of it. But we had a great time going back, and it was it was just so much fun to be away from my environment for 18 years. It just was a heavy burden that was uh, that was lifted, and the Lord had given me a lot of scriptures during that time. You know, when I was there at, early on, the Lord had given me a verse in Deuteronomy that was far. Um, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the 12 tribes. And it said that your locks shall be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so shall your leisurely walk be. I thought when I first went there, since the beginning, even when I went on a run, I would die in prison. And what the Lord was sharing with me is that I certainly would be there for many, many years, and, I, and my, my locks were iron and bronze, but I did have a leisurely time considering most in prison. And a couple of years before I got released, the Lord had given me another verse in Isaiah that talked about the exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeons. And that was both those life verses really spoke volumes to my heart. And I knew at that point in time, the Lord would release me from those bonds. And I'd have an opportunity to go out and to enjoy what the Lord had set forth, forth for me at that point. So, he had more I mean, work to do. so when you said that your
0: sister and your daughter came, uh, I, I noticed you didn't mention your wife.
1: Yes, my wife passed away when I was in prison. Uh, she had cancer. Uh, that was a very tragic thing for us because we had been together for over 45 years. And I wasn't able to go to the funeral, my mom's funeral, or my wife's funeral. Even though my behavior was extraordinary in the prison, the judge felt because of my past running that he didn't feel comfortable with me going to the, uh, to, the, uh, you know, to the funeral in the wake. Although the warden staff approved that they gave me a 10-day furlough uh, they had to rescind it because both the marshals and the, uh, the judge thought it would be best if I didn't get released from prison.
0: Okay, so tell us why you wrote the book.
1: Well, the book was on my heart about six months after I got out. Uh, and while I was in prison, I was a suicide companion for 10 years. And I saw the burden of many men's hearts that I got a chance to share the Word of God with as they were sitting in a cell with uh, nothing but you know, a smock that they wore so they couldn't hurt themselves. And I saw the pain that they were going through. So initially, I believed the Lord had put it on my heart to write, to tell a story about what prison is like and to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into focus on that's the only way that you're going to end up ridding yourself of all the trappings of prison life and when you get out. The recidivism rate in the United States for federal prisons is about 72%. Wow. So that means out of every 172 guys in, the, in five years, are going to have some, some sort of altercation. And if I can save one, it would be a blessing. I think back on what happened with Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, if he was in our prison, he never would have had an opportunity to commit suicide. He would have been watched continuously. Somebody at that prison in New York dropped the ball by taking him off a suicide watch. He certainly should have been on for quite a while. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a perfect example of a white collar guy that lost everything and has nowhere to turn because of his remorse of what he did and who he was. He had such great burden. The only way he felt he could relieve himself was to take his life. And if I could save one through that book, in that respect, I think that would be an awesome blessing. Great. So Richard, let me ask you
0: a question. What's your life like right now?
1: Oh, it's fantastic. It it doesn't get any better than this, Joe. Um, After getting out of prison, I worked uh, at a job. I had a regular job while I was on supervised release, and then once I, you know, I finished with that job, I was basically retired, and uh, through, uh, through um, a dating site, Christian Mingle of all places, uh, the Lord gave me a wife, and the first time I met Rosanna, I knew that the Lord had given her to me, and we have been married now five years, and she works as a hairdresser, and I'm at home taking care of you know things at the house, and I became Mr. Mom, the cook and cleaner, and I'm enjoying it. And I have opportunity to share prison ministry, you know, as well. So it's, it's fun, and it's exciting, and it, it, it's, 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 been a, it's been an awesome ride. And I'm thankful I'm on this side of, of the fence <laughs> now. and I'm, 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 serving, I'm serving the Lord the way he would have me serve him in trying to be the good steward that he's called me to be. So where do you see Bezalel going in, in the next few years? I, I'm not sure, Joe. I, I want to go back into the prison systems. But right now, because of my age and because of COVID, uh, they're restricting a lot of the elderly uh, you know, uh, staff members like myself to go back in. So I'm hoping, hopefully next year, once they come up with a vaccine, that I'll have opportunity to go back in and, and to share with the men. I've you know reunited with some of my old cellies that are in prison ministry as well. Um, one ended up getting his credentials, uh, ministry credentials while he was in. He has a prison ministry up in Maine. And another fellow, a, a friend of mine, is down in Texas, who was my, uh, my uh, friend and also my Sully, and he's got a prison ministry down in uh, South Dallas, Texas. So we've been blessed to have some good associations and be able to share the love of Christ one with another after many years, because these guys got, got released long before I get out. But it's nice to be able to you know, share with them, and we talk you know every couple of weeks, and it's been a blessing to be able to share. Uh, what haven't fun. we covered that you want men to know? Um, The only other thing that I would like to mention is all the proceeds of the book that that I wrote go to prison ministry. Um, We haven't sold thousands of copies by no means. But what we have sold, we've donated to pastors and churches that are supporting prison ministry. And uh, our first check went to a a pastor up in upstate New York who used to be one of the volunteers in the prison. He's been a uh, prison volunteer for over 35 years. And uh, he loves the Lord and he's he's an evangelist at heart. And uh, so we ended up sending him a donation through all the proceeds that we had. And we want to continue to do that to uh, churches and pastors to do it. So no monies are being kept by myself or my wife. We felt that the the Lord would have us, you know, whatever profit we made from it would be shared, you know, within the family of Christ Jesus.
0: Well, Richard, thank you for joining us on Legacy Lifters. Uh, Men, once again, you can get a copy of Richard's book, busted a bankers run to prison on amazon and barnes and noble richard we thank you very much and remember to visit legacymindedmen.org for great tools to help you grow as a man of god god bless you guys have a great day
1: thank you joe